I am excited to be here with you this morning and honored to be able to share with you from God's word. So if you will, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I was excited when I found out I was going to be preaching over this text because I realized it talked about false teachers. That's a fun thing to do, talk about false teachers. You know, like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, whoever else you can think of. And I'm young. I've got a little bit of fight in me. I want to do that. But the longer that I've come to study this text, the longer, the more I've come to realize that's not what it's about. And there's a difference between shoving doctrine down someone's throat and guarding doctrine. And how we go about guarding doctrine matters. So before we get going this morning, there's a couple of things that we need to remember. So we've got Paul writing this letter to Timothy who is pastoring the church in Ephesus. And Timothy has just recently stepped up from the associate pastor position to the senior pastor. He's trying to fill in Paul's shoes. And Paul is a hard act to follow. Because if you remember, back in Acts chapter 16, Paul's the guy who got mad at a possessed girl for being annoying, and he cast a spirit out of her. Now, it's kind of freaky. <laughs> He was just mad, and God listened when he cast the spirit out. Paul's got an intimate relationship with God. The Holy Spirit is present in and through Paul. And so try stepping into those shoes, because that's exactly what Timothy is trying to do. And we also need to remember that Paul is laying out a blueprint for how the church is supposed to act. That's what we're calling this series, and Troy began last week to um, tell us about this out of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It says, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. And Troy told us about the four different stories that are tied into this book told us about Paul and Timothy and the Ephesians and you. And then we looked at Revelation 2 and we saw how the Ephesian church had lost the love they had at first. And if they didn't repent, God was going to remove them from among the churches. And when you look at the timeline for this church that's in Ephesus, you see a really scary picture. Because Paul's writing this letter to Timothy in the early to mid-60s A.D., and then John is writing the letter in Revelation in the late 80s to early 90s A.D. So that's like 20, maybe 25 years difference. That's a short time. That's less than a generation, really. And so we're going to see today that they don't forget love because Paul doesn't tell them. But we're going to see what Paul reveals in this letter to them and then also to us. So we're going to pick it up in verse 3. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. 
Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. So Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who's he left to pastor the church in Ephesus. Now, why is Timothy there? Well, Paul tells us in verse 3, so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. And then also in verse 4, or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. And so these myths, these endless genealogies, this false doctrine, I mean, for the Ephesians, this was Jewish traditions, Jewish laws. But for us, you know, it could tend to be any number of things, including doctrines. And so there's a uh, well-known scholar and pastor from several centuries ago, John Bunyan. He says, some love the meat, but some love to pick the bones. And then another pastor commented on this saying, and you will find people who delight in picking the bones of vital doctrines get very little nourishment from the truth of God's word. Because instead of being occupied with Christ, they are occupied with side issues. Now we're not saying that side issues aren't valuable or they aren't important, but what we are saying is they don't matter like the real stuff, the meat of scripture. And so an example of this would be, there's a debate among biblical scholars as to whether God created the earth in seven literal days or over seven periods of time spanning millions of years. Now, I firmly believe that God created the earth in seven literal days, but there are people who believe otherwise. But our argument over whether it was seven days or seven million years has no bearing on faith. And so these arguments are only going to permit, promote empty speculations and instead of God's plan. But I want to look at, when we look at God's plan in the Greek, I think what we really see is a due discharge of a commission from God. And so if we could put up the next slide, we're going to read 1 Timothy 1.4 again. These promote empty speculations rather than a due discharge of a commission from God which operates by faith. Now what's that commission? It's the commission to go and make disciples. All of this talk about whether creation happened in seven days or in millions of years has no real bearing on the fact that we as humans sinned and we were therefore separated from God but God in his love and in his mercy sent Christ who died the death we deserve. He was buried and he rose to new life for you and for me so that we could be raised to new life also. And we do this by faith, trusting that God has everything worked out and he will enable us to do what he has called us to do. So Paul continues on in verse five. He says, now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. How do you get those? How do you get a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith? The Holy Spirit has to transform your heart so that you can have those and so that you can live out this love. Because the love that they're teaching about, the love that we're teaching about, 
It comes from this transformed heart. And yet, continuing in verse six, Paul says, some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. This fruitless discussion, it's that same stuff we've already been talking about, the seven days or millions of years. In verse seven, they want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. So these may have been leaders or may have been defectors who were teaching about things that had no bearing on faith. You know, some of these side issues, if you force them the wrong direction, you will force someone to abandon their faith to follow yours. And I'm not talking about like a Christian faith versus a Muslim faith. I'm talking about a Christian faith versus a Christian faith. Paul tells us in Romans 14, Romans 14 I think we have that on the screen. Maybe not. Tells us in Romans 14, accept anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not judge one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls, and he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, we could preach a whole sermon on that text right there, but that's not the point. Did you catch it? Do not argue about disputed matters. And we're not talking about critical issues. Again, we're talking about those things that just don't help anyone's faith at all. So Paul, earlier in the text, he tells us, prevent false teaching. And then he goes on to say, but also don't let fruitless discussion become the goal either. And we're gonna move on in the text, starting in verse eight. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. So Paul says, the law is good if you use it. These teachers were apparently teaching the law was bad, but that is not it. Paul says, it's good if you use it right. But how do you use it right? If you look back at Romans chapter seven this time, you see, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known what sin, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, do, had not said, do not covet. It's a rare thing that we would have an interest in the law books. It just is, that's how we are. We don't, really, we don't really like those. But Paul says they're good. And in Romans, he teaches us that the law tells us what sin is, but it doesn't cause us to commit sin. Now, sin seizes the opportunity that the law provides by telling us what sin is and produces in us sin, but it is not the law that is bad. And he says the law is not for the righteous person. Why? Because the righteous person doesn't have a problem with the law. 
They don't have this issue of sin. They're righteous. And then going through this list of who the law is for. So you have the lawless and the rebellious. Now, when you look at the Greek for these two words, you could really almost translate them to be the lawless and the lawless, so like the same word. And then you go to the ungodly and sinful. And again, you go to the Greek and you look at it and you could almost translate these to be the same word. The unholy and irreverent. And you get the same thing again, where it's the same words that could be translated the same. Before we keep going, I wanna point out something about this, these first six items. They're basically three sets of two, and each of the two have the same meaning, and each of the three is basically saying the same thing. We're, we're sinners, or sinners are, you could describe it with sinners, sorry. Now God purposed each word, and I don't want to take away from that, but I want us to notice the repetition that he's using here when he uses all six of these. Each one describes a sinner. And so why does he do this six times? And I truly believe that it is because we are all sinners. And he doesn't want us to get super caught up in the rest of this list. But we're, so we're just gonna work through the rest of it fairly quickly. Those who kill their fathers and mothers. H.A. Ironside makes the point that you don't have to stab your mother with a knife or strike your father with a club to kill them. Many mothers have gone down to the grave early because of the evil behavior of a loved son or daughter, and many a father has sunk under the awful blow of a son or daughter who turned away from the path of righteousness. Murder does not merely consist of the unjust, deliberate taking of life, but also anything that breaks one's health and leads to an early death. So this is almost an unintentional killing here. But Paul also goes on in the next word to say murderers. So that's the intentional killings. And let's come back to sexually immoral and homosexuals. So slave traders, or what we might call kidnappers. And then liars and perjurers, or oath breakers. Okay, let's come back to sexually immoral and homosexuals. I want to be overly clear in this moment. It would be extremely easy for you to hear what I'm about to say and take it and run with it any direction you'd like. So listen close. The Bible here and in other places clearly and undeniably defines sexual immorality as a sin. Similar, similarly, here in other places, the Bible clearly and undeniably de defines homosexuality as a sin. Now, here's what I want you to hear about this. Any kind of sexual immorality or homosexuality is a sin. If you are talking with someone who struggles with these, remember that the goal of this instruction is love. If you are struggling with any of these, the goal of this instruction is love. Now what I'm not saying is that this is okay, because it's not. What I am saying is that we are still called to love. We believe that these are sins, but we believe that you are loved by God. We are not here to condemn you or judge you. We are here to 
love you and care for you and to live out the gospel to you. So Paul finishes this section out saying, or anything else that is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which was entrusted to me. The gospel. The good news that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was buried and raised to life. The good news that because of what Christ has done, we can be reconciled to a holy God who is everything good that we are not. The good news that sin and shame no longer have a hold on us who are saved. The good news that this is a free offering to everyone. So this is a hard text, it's kind of a crazy text. And I think coming out of this text, we're led to ask two questions. Two questions that will affect how we make decisions as individuals, as couples, as life teams, as families, and ultimately as the church. So here are these two questions. Does what I'm about to do advance the gospel? Does what we are about to do advance the gospel? And the second question is, is it motivated by love? Now, I have this pair of glasses here. I don't wear glasses myself, but I think I've got a pretty good grasp on what they do. After countless tireless hours of research, I have determined that glasses help you see. So you've got your lenses that help you see, and you've got the framework that holds them on your face so that you can continue seeing. It's a, this is a pretty complicated concept, but I think we can use it. So picture with me that this right lens here is the question, does what we are about to do advance the gospel? And then the left lens, is it motivated by love? I want us to assume that we have a fundamental spiritual disability to see. So that when we put these glasses on, we're able to see things the way God has designed for us to see them. Now I can't keep these glasses on because I can't see with them. But let's look at these a little closer. So if we just have one lens, we end up in a dangerous boat. If you just have the lens where you're asking the question, does what we are about to do advance the gospel? Then you will take the gospel to many places and many peoples. Many people will hear about who Christ is and come to him and be saved and all is great. But if we don't do it with love, why did we do it? If, did we do it to have a number? Did we do it to get glory? Did we do it to say we did something? If we did it for any of these reasons, it was all sham. I mean, it's all worthless. But then you have the love lens without the gospel, and you end up in a different boat, but it's still just as dangerous. Because we can love people and we can care for people, but if we do it without the purpose of telling them who Jesus is, what did we accomplish? Nothing they will be doomed to an eternity in hell because we did not tell them how they could be saved and by whom they could be saved. But it's also dangerous because you can love people to a point that isn't healthy for them or for you. 
And you could end up with a physical threat to your safety because of that. Now, I think of an example here in the church being the safety team. There are people who have to weekly put on these glasses and ask the questions, does what we are doing advance the gospel? Is it motivated by love? Because when they respond to a situation, if they have to, if they have to respond to a crisis or a threat, they have to ask the question, does what we are about to do advance the gospel? Is it motivated by love for Christ and protection of his church? Now, I use them as an example, but this is true of every context we serve in and every context we live in. Does my sermon advance the gospel? Is it motivated by love? So I just want to give you three really practical examples of what this looks like. The first one we're going to do is a teaching example. And so I'm going to teach you something from the Hebrew Bible. We're going to use a tool called the equidistant letter sequence. And what that means is, is we're going to build a word using the letters in the Hebrew Bible that are equally spaced apart. So we're going to go to Genesis 1, and we're going to come to a tav, and that acts like our T. And then we're going to count 49 letters, and we're going to come to a vav, and that acts like our O. We're going to count 49 letters. We're going to get a resh which acts like an R, 49 more letters, and we're going to get a He, which acts like our H. And so we have T-O-R-H, and we would translate that as Torah. And the Torah is the five books of Moses, the law. So this is an interesting thing. We go to Exodus, and we're going to come to the Tav, 49 letters, you get a vav. 49 letters, you get a resh. And 49 letters, you get a hey. Again, you have Torah. Now, when you go to Leviticus, you're kind of relieved because it doesn't happen. It's like, this is kind of weird. <laughs> I'm glad it didn't happen again. But we're only going to get weirder because we're going to go to numbers. And we're going to come to a hey. And we're going to count 49 letters. And we're going to get a resh. And we're going to count 49 letters and we're gonna get a vav, we're gonna count 49 letters, and we're gonna get a tav. And so what you end up with is H-R-O-T, and that's Torah spelled backwards. You go to Deuteronomy, you get the same thing. So now come back to Leviticus. So we're going to start with the yod, this time it acts like a Y, and then we're going to count seven letters, so that's the square root of 49. We're going to come to a hey. We're going to count seven letters. We're going to come to a vav. And this time the vav is more like a V or a W. And then seven more letters, and we're going to get another hey. And so you have yod hey vav hey, which is the impronounceable name of God in Hebrew, what we often translate to be Yahweh. And what you get is the Torah is always pointing to God. That's kind of cool. But if this were to be my actual teaching material on a Sunday, I would want to ask the question, does this advance the gospel? 
Now, some have pointed to this as design and linked it to the authenticity of the scriptures. And that's great. But I don't really see how this could advance the gospel. Is it motivated by love? Well, I think we can all agree that it would be more loving if we were to stop talking about it right now. Okay, so come to another example. So in our everyday lives, we have some routines. We wake up in the morning. We get out of bed and get ready for work or school. We drive, walk, ride the bus to work or school. You do what you do for eight hours. You come home, you eat dinner. You might watch some TV or read a book. And you go to bed and you do it all again tomorrow. Now what if you were to put on your glasses when you woke up in the morning? Many of you wear glasses and so you know what that's like. Some of us don't have any idea what that's like. But what if we put on these spiritual glasses every morning and we begin asking the questions right when we wake up, how does what I do next advance the gospel? Is it motivated by love? So how does brushing my teeth advance the gospel? Because I think there's a real answer to this question. So when you brush your teeth, it is a lot easier to talk to people. That's just the fact of the matter. So, well, then it's gonna be easier to share the gospel. Then, is it motivated by love? And I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that brushing your teeth is loving people. Driving to work. So is there someone you need to share the gospel with at work or in your carpool if you do that? Does that advance the gospel? And is it motivated by love? So one more example. And this is one from my personal life. So Amy and I started looking for a house six months ago or so, and then just over the last month, we've been going through this series here at church of Would You Be My Neighbor? And so as I was preparing this sermon, I began to ask questions and began to realize that when we go to look at a house, we need to be asking these questions. Would moving to this house, this neighborhood, advance the gospel? And is it motivated by love? Or is it motivated by what the house has to offer us? And I've begun to wonder is it worth losing for the sake of the advancement of the gospel? And I'm not talking about losing the house, but is it worth giving up certain things that we want or desire in order to advance the gospel? Would it be worth paying more than we should for a house with less to offer in a neighborhood that needs Jesus? Now, I know that I'm giving every parent and grandparents, especially mine, and bankers and realtors in this room in arrhythmia. But I am dead serious when I ask these questions. And we're not talking about doing something we can't afford, but we're talking about doing something, about losing something for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. And so as I've been preparing, as I've been thinking through this, I've begun to realize that there is absolutely no way that we could do this without an overflowing love for Jesus that needed to be poured out on others.
It's this really radical idea until we read a verse like 1 Timothy 1.5. Paul says, now the goal of our instruction is love. And that love comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. All of Paul's writing here and all of his writing in general is summed up in this verse. The goal is love that comes from a heart that has been transformed by Jesus. So where does that leave us today? We need to respond. We absolutely must respond. Now, you don't have to come up to the front to respond. We'll have some people who are along the sides of the room. But you don't even have to leave your seat. You can respond right where you are. We're going to sing a song in a minute. And I want you to take that time to respond in your heart. And as you leave here today, make sure you're wearing those glasses. Make sure that you're asking the questions, is what I'm about to do advance the gospel? Is it motivated by love? And I'm sure that here today, there are people in this room who have not yet put their faith in Jesus. The gospel has been presented to you today but I wanna take the time and do it once more because I don't want you to miss it. Each and every one of us has sinned against God. And because of sin, we are separated from him. And God loves us so much and wants us so much to be connected with him that he sent Jesus Christ to be the perfect substitute sacrifice for you and for me. And Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and he was raised to new life. He's now seated at the right hand of God, and today, he is ready to bring you into the family of God. Now, if you're ready to take that step today, I would, I would plead with you, talk to someone, pray with them to receive Christ. So I'm going to pray for us. We're gonna sing one last song, and as you feel led, Respond to God's call today. Be over here along the sides of the room. God, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to hear what you have to say to us. God, these are not easy words. They are hard they go against everything that we have been taught as a society. And so we're asking that today you would work in our hearts. Do not let us leave here without responding to what you have said today. God, we need you to work in us. We need you, God. Lord, I ask that as we go forth from here today, that you would help us to make sure that we are wearing our glasses to make sure that we are asking those questions. Lord, are we advancing the gospel? Is it motivated out of our love for you? God, we just thank you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. You are worthy of our praise.
God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.